I have, I haven't really talked to very many slack liners before. I've seen people doing it before and I've never done it myself and I've watched your videos before. Um, but for those people who haven't, who don't know about slacklining, um, can you explain what it is and how you got into it? Of course. Um, slacklining is a balanced sport. And I would say it's kind of evolved from tightrope walking. So tightrope walkers walk a steel cable that's completely taut, whereas slackliners balance on what we call webbing, which is a flat woven rope. And they are actually quite loose and over time have gotten looser and looser. And so they sway and move and it takes a great deal of effort to keep them stable to walk on them. And slackliners don't use a pole for balance. We use our arms and our arms usually sway back and forth as we maintain equilibrium. And slacklining was sort of created by rock climbers in Yosemite Valley in the late 70s and early 80s. They were taking climbing gear that they had, which was webbing, and tying it between trees or boulders and using it as a rest day activity. And I guess a few people became quite keen on it and developed it and ended up taking it high off the ground, which is how highlining came about. And um, that's where you wear a climbing harness and you have a leash, which you attach to the line. And that is definitely the, the most extreme form of slacklining. But the majority of people practice in a park, low to the ground between trees. And that's definitely how I started. I discovered it in a park in my hometown of Austin, Texas, when I was about 18. And at first I thought it was absolutely impossible. And then I just kept seeing it every day when I was hanging out in this park. And so eventually I was like, okay, I'll give it another shot. And I took a step. And I was pretty hooked after that because just the ability to take a step on this wobbly band between trees was amazing. And I really wanted to conquer the line after that. So, so what did you, how did you feel when you first saw people doing it? You just saw you were in a park somewhere, you saw people trying it and you just, you know, what, what was it? What was, how, how did you feel when you just saw some people just sort of walking on this band across two trees? You know, I'd seen people in the park doing kind of circusy type activities, hula hooping and juggling, and there was kind of a group of people who would do that often, so it wasn't like I was shocked by it. However, I definitely was impressed because I'd never seen it before. I'd never seen a tightrope walker in person before, so to see someone able to balance on a band like that was impressive. And, you know, and initially I just it seemed impossible and it, you know, like, oh, I'm going to fall on the ground if I try to do that. However, for whatever reason, the second time I tried it, it seemed way more plausible and feasible. And, you know, the guy who was practicing in the park gave me a few tips and that really helped me to take some steps. And then progress. Hold on one second. I'm getting some bad Mm -hmm. audio. Let me, let me see if I can do something about that. I think I know it's on my side, so let me see. Hold on, was um, you? You were, you were. I'm sorry. You were saying that you you saw it in the park, and can you tell me the story one more time about uh, what, what you, you about what you had just said? I'm so sorry. Yeah, no worries. Um, when I saw it in the park, I had seen people practicing circus arts in the park before. 
So I wasn't surprised to see someone balancing on a, a slackliner, which I didn't know was a slackline at the time. But I definitely was impressed because, you know, to be able to walk on this one inch wide band that's wobbly and stretched between two trees, definitely at that time wasn't something you would encounter every day. So when I tried it, I absolutely thought it was impossible. I mean, I had no ability to stop it from shaking and wobbling all over the place. But for whatever reason, the second time I tried it, um, the guy who I met in the park doing it gave me some tips and that enabled me to take a step and then take two steps. And suddenly it seemed possible. Wow. And, and how did you feel in your body when you were able to take that first step? Do you remember? Oh, I was elated. I was excited. And, and I think what really caught me about slacklining initially was that you immediately got into a zone. It was impossible if you were distracted, if you were trying to look around or talk to other people. But I had to focus on the very end of the line and keep my posture really straight and then try to breathe and stay calm on this wobbly band. And I don't know, just to get kicked into the zone like that was really incredible. And, and I immediately liked it. I liked to be focused and concentrated like that. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that people get really don't really understand a lot is that when people they think about people who do these kinds of sports as being kind of adrenaline junkies, but they don't understand that it's the focus that's the most important piece of it is being able to be focused in the midst of what can be a very chaotic thing is something that's very important for sports like slacklining. Um, I don't know if you know this, but the cover of, of my book is a slackliner, actually. And I saw that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we tried to mask the gender of the individual because we really wanted to emphasize that a lot of these sports could be men or women um, because we think it's, a, it's really a myth that a lot of these uh, kinds of things that are, you know, adventure sports um, you know, even though they can be dominated by men, um, women are really an important piece of it. Um, are, are there other myths you think that in your in your sport that you think that you want to try to dispel right now? Well, I think you covered the two primary ones. I remember when I started becoming a professional highliner, I would do a lot of interviews and articles, and oftentimes the the article would be titled something with thrill seeking or adrenaline junkie, and it always kind of panged me because they didn't quite understand that the meditative state that I could achieve on a slackline and a highline was really what I was going for. Adrenaline almost becomes an enemy because even though parts of it do feel good, it's, it is a rush, generally you're not calm and you really need to be calm to do your best on a slackline. And so over time, the more you expose yourself to heights and you know what the brain perceives as danger, even if it is in actuality safe, you do build up a tolerance to that adrenaline adrenaline and that enables you to become a better athlete. So it's funny because I wasn't actually seeking a thrill, I was seeking calm. And the more I practiced, the less adrenaline I experienced and the better athlete I became. Yeah, there's, and there's also a, Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go for it. No, there, there's a quote in one of one of the people I interviewed that said that it, adrenaline is really it's a terrible drug because some, it really kicks in sometimes when you don't really want it to, and and sometimes you have to sort of beat it away to do the things that you really want to do in a lot of these sports. 
Exactly. Um, and and um, and when you tell people that this is your you know primary thing that you do, what what do people what do people say? Well, there's in that regard, there's a couple questions I get. Um, people often respond with, "People actually pay you to do that." <laughs> So that's often the first question, and I try to explain to them that it can be a very performative sport, and that um, you know it's a great opportunity to to do a show for people or to you know do a TV program and explain why I do it. And then another question that's very common is, how do you get the line across? Oh yeah. And uh, that's often what people really don't understand is that they see this insane gap between cliffs and they just can't fathom how we could make a connection. But in regards to the actual practice of being very high off the ground, walking on the skinny little band between two points, I think a lot of people think it's far more dangerous than it really is because just from an image, you might not actually be able to see what goes into all the safety protocol. And we have doubled everything when we practice highlining. So if one thing breaks, you always have a backup and you have a harness and a leash. And so I think it just looks so foreign to the average person. They don't really understand why anyone would want to put themselves in such a situation. And I think without understanding the safety involved, it does look extremely reckless and you are, very high off the ground. Death is definitely what would occur if you fell and hit the ground. And so I think for people who don't do any sports that are similar, they they want to know why, you mm. know, they, why would you do that? And, and I think this goes back to what you mentioned about thrill seeking and adrenaline rushes. And I think that's sort of what media has really cultivated in regards to people who do these types of sports is that they are all kind of lumped in and fit under that label. When in fact, highlining is extremely safe if you wear a harness and a leash. And there's been very few deaths in the sport in its entire history. And a lot of the deaths were things related to, you know, sudden storms coming in or, you know, rocks falling, some accident that could happen sort of in any scenario where you're outdoors in nature. And so a lot of times the, the landscape in which we practice this sport is more dangerous than the sport itself. Mm. So I think I no, usually try to convey. Yeah. yeah no, could you, could you explain what, what highlining is? So highlining is slacklining high off ground. It's where you take your slack line. That's normally just a few feet above the ground and you raise it hundreds to thousands of feet above the ground. And the sport in principle is the same, except we use a harness, a climbing harness, and a leash attached to the line. So if you were to fall off, you're just dangling a few feet below your line and you can get back on it. Hmm. And it, it so feels, dif- yeah, it's, it's a different thing, right? Because you're, theoretically, it, it, it you know, it's it's the same, you're still walking on the same thing, but it feels different because you're thousands of feet above the ground. Exactly. It's really fascinating to me what the mind can do. So I started between trees, low to the ground. There definitely was no fear when I started the sport of slacklining. You know, it was really just a physical challenge and maybe a challenge of concentration. 
And then when I tried my first high line, I was only about 50 feet above the ground, which doesn't sound much in comparison to thousands of feet above the ground. And yet my body would not stand up. I was sitting on that line with all the skills necessary to walk it. And yet my fear and my mind completely prevented me from succeeding. And it was so frustrating. I was sitting there telling myself, okay, three, two, one, stand up. And my body just wouldn't react. I was gripped. It was so interesting. And I think that's what really caught me about the sport was this manufactured challenge where I could really learn to overcome fear. And part of it is a very primitive fear. I think humans have evolved over thousands of years to stay away from cliff edges and to not be out in space like that. And so you really have to kind of go against a lot of things that are happening inside your body all at once in order to cross the line. Hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating because it's, you're, you're right, it's the same thing, but it's, you know, it, it feels different. And, and you've, you've done some other things too, because there is um, free solo slacklining, which is sort of the next, <laughs> yes. like literally the next step, right? And so t- tell people about free solo slacklining. What's, what's different about What's different about that? So most people practice highlining, which is slacklining high off the ground, with a harness and a leash attached to the line. So your life is actually completely preserved if you fall. And yet there is this other facet of the sport called free solo, which means you remove the harness and you remove the leash. And you still walk the highline, but you have no extra safety preserving your life if you Mm -hmm. fall. And very few people practice that type of slacklining because it is dangerous and there's no way I could sugarcoat it and tell you it's safe. It Mm. really has a high risk and no one has ever died doing it. I need to mention that because a lot of people think it's absolutely nuts, but I feel like that's good evidence that there is control involved. So, But it must feel different. It must feel different when you're doing it. Extremely. It it feels incredibly different. So I I began free soloing quite quickly in my highline career. It was less than a year since I started highlining that I began free soloing. And I don't know the exact reason why I wanted to do it other than that I really wanted to know what I was capable of to see if I could control my fear to the point where I could walk without a leash. Mm -hmm. And it's extremely different. And so a lot of free soloists, they work their way towards solo by reducing the amount of safety. So, you know, standard safety is a climbing harness, and then you might tie the leash to your ankle. And you would still survive if you fell, but it would be very unpleasant. And so that already escalates the amount of fear you experience because you don't feel a harness around your body. You just have the leash tied to your ankle. And you're aware that a fall would be very painful, maybe even damaging to your body. So that's kind of the first step or one of the steps you can take towards soloing. And sometimes I've sat on a line with the leash tied to my ankle and just been unable to do it and felt so much resistance in my mind and my body that I decided not to. And other times I've been able to walk the line so comfortably with the leash tied to my ankle with absolutely no falls, with no problem, totally relaxed. 
and I feel, okay, I'm capable of walking this line with no leash, considering how much control I have. And then I would remove, remove the leash from my ankle and sit on the line and take a deep breath and try to determine if it feels right. I'm very cautious with my soloing and some people push it quite hard. And so I think there's maybe a lot of reasons why that is, but as soon as you remove the leash and you don't feel that little tug of rope while you're walking, Mm -hmm. it's a completely different experience. I would almost say in my case, it's like a vibration in my entire body. Mm -hmm. And there's so much resistance from parts of me to do what I'm doing it takes all of my effort and energy just to calm myself down enough to walk. And this is definitely where a lot of people would say, why? And I think in my case, it was really because I wanted to conquer my fear. And all logic told me I was capable of walking those lines. I walked them with a harness. I walked them with an ankle leash. So physically, there was no reason I couldn't do it. And so the only thing stopping me was fear. And I just think it's pretty incredible to conquer your fear. And I needed to do it with the risk being death. Hmm. And I definitely don't think everyone does. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And so I've got two questions. One is, what did your friends say when you were telling them that you were going to do this and and, and you had done it? And that was the, that's sort of the first question. What was their reaction to that? Well, when I started doing it, I was traveling with a team um, with two guys who highlined as well. And one of them, I watched him solo several times. And that sort of inspired me in a way because mm-hmm. we were at a similar level in highlining. And I could see how pure it seemed to do it that way. It just seemed like the purest form of the sport to really just rely on your body and your mind in order to conquer the line. And also tightrope walkers who walk with a pole and on a steel cable almost never have harnesses and leashes. That sport, which is hundreds of years old, they always practice free solo. And the majority of their performances are free solo. If you go to the circus and see a tightrope walker, they are free solo. And so it just seemed that it wasn't impossible to be able to do it as well. And so my friends were obviously supportive because I was in a group of people who were practicing similarly, but my family wasn't as excited about it. (laughs) I can imagine. Yeah. It was actually a sore subject between my mother and I for years because essentially I told her that, I was an adult and I was going to make my own decisions and she just couldn't understand why I would need to do that. And, you know, it's totally legitimate of her to be afraid that her daughter was going to die doing Hmm. this sport. However, my argument, which sort of put the argument to rest was that I didn't want to be in the middle of a line with no leash thinking about how my mother didn't want me doing that thing. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And I told her to trust me. Hmm. I said, I'm not doing this because I think I'm invincible. There seems to be this kind of idea that people who, who do any dangerous activity in life think they're invincible. When that's not the case at all. If anything, it was so humbling to experience my 
humanness and my own mortality because the risk was very evident. I mean, when I was standing in the middle of a high line with no leash, it went through my mind over and over and over again, what would happen to me if I fell? There was never a moment that I didn't think about it. And so I think it would be really great to think you were invincible, but I actually think you would die a lot quicker. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, and what you've, and this next question is a little bit more, maybe not more complicated because one of the things I've discovered from talking to a lot of people who practice these things like you is that they're really self-reflective and they have a really good understanding of this. And so, but you, what you've done is you've sort of told me about the sort of progression of, um, slacklining for you from Mm -hmm. on the ground to higher up to with a leash to free soloing and how you have um, really practiced something that psychologists call what's called emotional regulation, which is your ability to be able to control your emotion in this, in, in this case, fear to do something very specific. I'm wondering whether or not, that has impacted your emotions in a way outside of your sport? Like, has that helped you in a way when you're not on the slack line? You know, it's a really interesting question. And uh, I will try not to talk too much at length about it. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. You can if you'd like. (laughs) Because that exact question is a constant thought for me and a thing I love because, you know, I started highlining at age 20. And so it was a very transformative experience for me to discover the sport that did kind of was a catalyst for self-reflection and highlining introduced me to the concept of the ego and how the ego is represented in all of us and how that constant chatter in our head is the ego chattering away and you know there's many different opinions on all of that and so I could never claim to be an expert but I find it so intriguing how the ego works in us and I at some point decided that fear was an emotion just sort of like what you said and that I could learn to regulate it like other emotions but By no means did all of those skills end up being the same as as dealing with parts of me that that therapy would work on. For example, highlining was not therapy. So even though I learned to be calm in these extreme circumstances, I didn't suddenly become a, you know, a perfectly well-balanced individual. I still had trauma from my childhood and things from my past that would result in certain emotional reactions, say in relationships or encountering stress in life. So what I really discovered that was that I developed a skill regulating the emotion of fear around this specific thing. And anything similar to that, I was able to put it into practice. So for example, rock climbing and being in the mountains and being in dangerous situations for example, like a car accident. I had a a really bad car accident where I slid on ice and flipped my vehicle over. And in that moment of the accident happening, I was able to completely calm down and just accept 
what was happening to my to me at that time. And I can't prove it, but I really attribute that to highlining and learning to regulate my fear response. But that doesn't mean that I didn't experience relationships where I was afraid of abandonment. So I don't think that regulation of emotion crosses over into every area of life. I think it's just one skill set. And in my case, it really was related to survival. So I learned to regulate my fear in regards to survival response, I suppose. And this is still an evolving thought for me because I am really into self-work in general. And what I noticed was that the more work I did on myself, on my own psychology, the less attracted to free soloing I became. Hmm. And it's really fascinating to me because I wonder in a way if I was using highlining as an escape, much like people will use drugs. And perhaps doing this work on other parts of myself, I just needed that escape less and less. Yeah. And it was something that you needed to figure out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It could be just getting older, but also I just, you know, had a sort of abandonment when I was younger. And so soloing really suited that part of my lifestyle because I don't know, I just, I loved escaping from the other parts of my life. Yeah. And maybe you just needed to know if you could do it. And once you knew that you could do it, maybe you just didn't need it anymore. You know? Yeah. It's interesting. I was, I was pushing that in myself for years, about five years. I was, doing more and more solos and doing longer and longer lines solo. And then, yeah, at some point it just became less important. And at times I really miss it. I don't do it very often anymore. But at the same time, I don't feel that I need it Hmm. the same way I did when I was younger. Now you also so do you another right. yeah yeah you also do another kind of slacklining that I don't think I've seen anybody else do which is in high heels as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and there I is something the start of that. really kind of amazingly uh, amazing about it. So can you tell me a little bit about what got you um thinking about that and uh, tell me about tell me about that as well. <laughs> So I, about 10 years ago, I began a girls-only slackline festival, which is now called the Women's Highline Meeting. And I started it because I was usually the only female practicing, and I was surrounded by dudes. And at some point, I was highlining with a couple other women, and they were complaining to me about how they really just didn't feel like they had space in the sport. They kind of felt that the guys they practiced with took up a lot of time on the lines and they just wanted to practice in a different way and they just didn't feel that they had space. And I was like, well, let's make our own festival. Let's just spend a weekend together connecting with each other and rigging our own lines. And, you know, for once we can be a majority. And that was the birth of this really special event. And 10 years later, it's still happening, and the numbers have grown and grown and grown, and last year there were 60 women who came together to Highline, mm. and um, it's really become a major passion for me to encourage more women to practice and to kind of show the world that it's totally normal that women 
practice this sport too. And you touched on this in the beginning of the, the podcast interview, so we'll I would definitely love to come back to it. But the high heel thing came out of that festival because I essentially wanted to poke fun at gender stereotypes. And so women are often kind of expected to have this kind of look or to dress these certain ways or to kind of uphold this societal feminine norm. Mm. And so I said, hey, we're doing this extreme sport. Let's wear dresses and silly outfits and show people what women can do. And high heels became part of that idea. And we all said, hey, do you think it's possible? Do you think it's anyone could actually walk a high line in high heels? And I was like, well, I'm going to try. And so I did it. And it was funny because the first time I did it, I was wearing high heels that this other girl brought. And they were like three sizes too big. So I had to kind of like clench my feet to even keep them on. And it was so hard. It was so difficult, but it was so fun. And I just think there's something really entertaining about combining costumes with a sport that's all about fear because it really helps to dispel fear. If you can also laugh at yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I have to ask, have any, like, you know, most guys can't even walk on flat ground in high heels, much less on a slack line. Um, But have any, did any of the guys ever try to do a slack line on in high heels? Yes. Yes, they did. Just a few years ago. So the first time I walked in high heels was probably in 2011. So it was a while ago. And just two or three years ago, uh, a German guy who's a very, very skilled highliner, you know, decided he was going to beat my record. (laughs) And so I don't think he, he did, but he he was trying a really big high line and I saw some pictures of him sitting, sitting on it with high heels and uh, he had pretty small feet. So I think it was pretty easy for him to, to find a pair of high heels that fit him. But I'm pretty sure a few guys were trying it for a little while and, and no doubt at some point in the future more will try, but I encouraged everybody, men and women. I said, Hey, this is just a great challenge regardless of how you feel about the shoes. Yeah. There's something really pretty amazing about it. And if you haven't seen the video, you should definitely check it out because it's, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty awesome. It's pretty awesome. Um, so, so what's next for you? What's, um, what's, what's coming up next that you're excited about? Well, just um, a month away is the 10th edition of the Women's Highline Meeting. So I'm actually going to Europe. It happens in Czech Republic every year. And so I lived in Europe for years, so I have a really good community there and still consider it partially my home. And so I'll be there for about a month and I'll host that event. And I'm always really excited about it because it's just so incredible to gather all these women together and to share this sport of highlining, but really just to give women a a chance to be a majority in a sport where it's mostly men. Mm -hmm. And highlining is unique in the way that it doesn't really matter what your gender is because it's more about conquering your own mind than a physical feat. And so it's really unique in the way that women have been at the same level as men several times throughout this sport. And currently they are, the record is shared between men and women. So I really love it for a lot of reasons. And that is one of them. And then, you know, I've been doing slacklining professionally for 10 years and that's kind of a long time to do any one thing. And so this year was um, a different year for me because I had to get knee surgery, which was a result Mm. of 
going hard for years and dealing with a shoulder injury as well. So I've really had to step back from all these sports that I've really identified with. And so I'm kind of at a crossroads. I'm trying to figure out where to go from here. I absolutely love what I've been able to accomplish. And I love the the traveling and the life that I've lived through slacklining and highlining. And so I'm ready for a change, not necessarily leaving the sport, but changing how I do it and changing how I do it professionally. Hmm. So I can't tell you what's next exactly because right now I'm just trying to recover from these injuries. Yeah. But um, yeah, something good is yeah. coming. What, what's, and what's life been like not being on the slack line? It's different. It's amazing how balanced I was when I was slacklining all the time. And I really notice it in everyday life, just how I've lost some of those muscles that I mm. had from slacklining. And so my balance is not as good. Mm. And so I've recently just put a slackline in my backyard and started practicing again so I can get back into it. And I do really, really miss the self-reflection that I experience while slacklining and highlining. Mm. But I do think it's, it's good to have this break and kind of reevaluate and to come back to it with a different attitude. It's also different when you take your passion and turn it into a job. Mm. And I did that and I'm so grateful that I was able to do it. And I feel so fortunate that I was able to, to do my passion as a job, but it does change it. You know, when you go out and do it and you can't really tell if you're working or you're having fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of seeing how I can transform it at this point. Yeah. Well, I, is, oh, is there anything else that you want people to know about, you know, just you know, getting a peek? And I think that I, one of the things I've, I've realized is that people have all of these misunderstandings about, you know, what goes on inside the minds of people that, that are, you know, into these adventure sports. Um, and is there anything else that you want to, any other myths that you want to dispel or things you want people to know? I think if anyone could do anything, it would be good to not generalize an entire group of people. Mm. You know, slacklining is incredible and it's, it's spread around the world. I mean, when I started, there were so few people practicing and now there's a lot of people doing it professionally, especially in Europe. A lot of European countries have really embraced it. And then on top of that, it's, easy to say, you know, oh, it's a bunch of hippies or something like that. But <laughs> actually, you know, there's people from all walks of life and all ages practicing the sport. And I think what's really incredible about slacklining is that it's so individualistic mm -hmm. that you don't have to be any certain thing. You don't have to be an athlete. You don't have to be really fit. You don't have to be a certain age. Anybody can learn to balance. And I think it's so helpful for everyone to try. And so I would just encourage everybody, if they have the opportunity to try slacklining, you don't have to do it thousands of feet off the ground to receive a lot of those same benefits. Yeah, you don't and have to do it in high heels. Yeah. Exactly. Actually, I would <laughs> discourage you from doing it in high heels. <laughs> Well, yeah, I guess I would just dispel the myth. A lot of people would say, oh, I'm, I'm not in shape enough. I'm too old. I'm too this. I'm too that. And I really do think that there is absolute equality in equilibrium. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. You've been so amazing to talk to. 
And, you know, I, and I really do appreciate how self-reflective you've been and how you've really, you know, helped people to understand, you know, what's going on inside your mind and how you have really been a really advocate for, for, you know, your, your, your sport and also really for yourself in terms of what you've gotten out of it and, and how you've helped people to understand it a lot better. So I really appreciate your time.